Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 29th, 2019, and this is show number 751. Well, I had a great idea for Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, but my guest can't be on for a couple of weeks, unfortunately, so I'm afraid I didn't pull off the show. Sorry about that. It is really rare that I make a change to the homepage of podfeet.com. I resist the urge to glop it up like I did the old version, where I ended up with so many menus at the top level that it was a hot mess. The time has come, and it's probably past due, to make a very small addition. You know the red buttons in the middle of the graphic that say things like podcast, blog posts, and support the show, and they take you straight to those things? Well, I added one this week that will take you directly to Bart's blog post for security bits. I know it's an important reference for people, and I have and having direct access to those instead of scrolling through the other blog posts would have great value. I hope you like that. Speaking of great value, during the newly back-from-summer hiatus of Programming by Stealth, Bart and I extolled the virtues of the fantastic PBS index created by fellow student Dorothy, also known as Mac Lurker. I've talked about the PBS index before, but she's really been going to town on enhancing it. For those of you not taking the programming classes from BART, I should explain what it is so you can appreciate the awesomeness anyway. Every lesson, BART introduces us to new concepts and terminology. We often have to refer back to previous shows to reread the things that he's taught us, refresh our memory. Finding the concepts we want to refresh is really hard using plain old search on a website. Dorothy decided way back at the beginning of Programming by Stealth to start keeping a little spreadsheet for herself of what she thought was important in each episode. She noted the link to the full tutorial webpage and the concept or term. At some point, I suggested this would have great value to the rest of the class, so she started exporting what she was creating to an HTML table, and we imported it, we imported it into what's called an iframe inside of a webpage on podfeed.com. It was ugly, but it got the job done. Not ugly because of her what she had done, but putting it inside an iframe, it was clumsy and it was old HTML. It wasn't really cool. The problem, though, is that Bart just keeps teaching. Every lesson, the iframe was getting longer and longer, and eventually the page was getting out of hand. Now, here's the cool part. Over the 80-plus lessons we've had, Bart has taught us a bunch of amazing tools that Dorothy was able to employ to build what Bart calls now a full-fledged web app instead of a dumb web page. Dorothy made the PBS index really pretty using the bootstrap utilities that she learned, in particular the bootstrap data table library. She also put the data into a JSON file, which she was able to access using Ajax to import to the page, all stuff she learned from BART in Programming by Stealth. She was able to make it a responsive design by using even more concepts that BART taught us. Now the PBS index is a gorgeous thing to behold, and more importantly, it responds instantly as you start to type a search term, filling in the page only with the lessons that might be what you're seeking. BART and I both decided it's finally worthy of its own URL. On BART's site, if you're looking for it, simply go to bartb.ie slash pbsindex. If you're on mine, go to podfeet.com slash pbsindex. You know everything good starts with podfeet.com, right? podfeet.com slash pbsindex. 
And while I was at it, since I had just made a change to the homepage of podfeed.com, I decided that if you, uh, you know how you can scroll down to the icons for the podcast? One of them says Programming by Stealth and has a little description of the show. Well, right in there, I put a link directly to the PBS Index. Now, Dorothy wanted her face and, you know, picture of her there and maybe some shining lights, but, you know, her head's going to get all swole up if I do any more. Anyway, I don't want to hear any excuses for why you can't find something in the Programming by Stealth show notes. I know there's a lot of articles online right now about the new night mode from Apple on the iPhone Pro 11 Pro, but I simply can't resist the temptation to throw in my two cents. My good friend Pat Dangler pinged me and asked if I'd like to do some night shooting with her with our new phones. We went down to the beach and played around near on top of and under the Hermosa Beach Pier. We got there around 8 p.m. and the sun had gone down around 6.50 p.m., so it's full on dark. We brought a couple of Joby Gorilla Pods and iPhone mounts so we could get the full effect of night mode. I purposely didn't read anything about night mode ahead of time because I wanted the fun of figuring it out on my own. It took Pat and me a while to figure out exactly how it works. First of all, you don't choose night mode. It chooses to go on when there's not enough light, much like eh, like an auto flash mode would. Technically, you can enable it in highlight situations, but we'll skip over that for now. When the camera is in night mode, you'll see an indicator of a number of seconds. Night mode automatically sets that number based on how still the camera is. If you're hand-holding the phone, night mode will show three seconds as the longest exposure. If you've got the phone in a tripod, you'll see much larger numbers, depending on the stability of the base for the tripod. I didn't note the maximum, but it's more than 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds. It's pretty long. Now, the dial shows you, allows you to change that exposure time to something shorter. So if it says you can do 20 seconds, you could change it to 10. But if it says you can do 20, you can't turn it up to 25. You can actually dial it all the way down to zero to disable the feature. Now, I've been calling this number of seconds exposure time, but that's not technically correct. The exposure isn't three seconds or 10 seconds long. It's three one-second exposures and 10 one-second exposures. The processor in the phone then stacks these images on top of each other and combines them into one photo. This used to require high-end photo software like Affinity Photo or Photoshop, but now it can be done right in your phone. I do have to admit I didn't figure this out until I got home. I wanted to see all the EXIF data to check how long each exposure was to judge which one looked best, but all of the photos I took all night showed a one-second exposure. The stacking concept has some huge advantages and explains why the photos with longer times look so much better than the shorter ones. With stacked images, the processing will reinforce any parts of the image that is unchanging, and the changing features will will not be amplified. So in low light, image sensors create noise in your images. I'm sure you've seen this yourself. A low light photo gets really noisy looking. Since this generated noise is random, it changes from image to image. If you stack enough noisy images together, this noise that's changing from shot to shot will actually disappear or kind of blend out. I took two shots from under the pier looking out at the ocean. One shot exposed at three seconds and one at 20. And the difference in the two photos is remarkable. The three second shot isn't terrible, but if you zoom in at all, the ocean waves look kind of crunchy and the sky is very displeasing. In the 20 second version, the sky is much smoother and the ocean waves have turned into that cool creaminess that you get with long exposures. 
Another thing to note is that the 20-second shot isn't actually brighter or overexposed in any way, but the quality is so very much better. I put both photos into the show notes and link them to high-resolution versions so you can pixel-peep these for yourself. Now, keep in mind as you look at these that they were taken an hour and a half after sunset. It's truly remarkable. I also put a little video in the show notes of what noise looks like and uh, and how it is changing, but you can do this yourself. Take your phone and uh, cover up the, uh, just lay it face up and have the camera looking at the back camera. And when you do that, if it's sitting on a table, you'll actually see the noise because it's got no light and it's just going, I don't know what to do. And it just sits there making noise. Well, now that we understand why we care about these images, let's walk through how the camera interface is substantially different on iPhones 11 versus earlier phones. At the top of the screen, you'll see the familiar toggles for auto flash and live, but the timer and filter buttons are no longer up at the top. Instead, on the left-hand side, there's a little crescent moon button to represent night mode, as well as an up-down chevron. If your phone has enough light to take a normal photo, the crescent moon icon will be white. But if it thinks night mode would be helpful, the icon area turns yellow, and it will tell you how many seconds it thinks would be appropriate to expose your photo. With the chevron I mentioned just now flipped up, You'll see the normal options above the shutter button to flip between photo, video, portrait, you know, the usual suspects. But if you tap the chevron at the top of the screen, it will flip down and now above the camera shutter button, you will see a different set of options. You'll find the icons for flash, live photos, timer, and filters, but you'll also get an icon for night mode and one to change the aspect ratio from 4 by 3 to 16 by 9 or square. That's when I realized that square was no longer an option in the normal mode, which makes me unbelievably happy. I used to hit square all the time by accident, and I never wanted it on purpose. I can select it now if I ever do want it, but it's not in the normal list. This week, Steve and I had dinner with our good friends David Roth, the NoSilicast way I'm always talking to is afraid of math, and his lovely wife Jennifer, who is not afraid of math. We wanted a selfie to commemorate the event as we only get to see each other every couple of years. It was nearly 9 o'clock at night, so we tried using night mode. I flipped the aspect ratio to 16 by 9 using the back camera, and we are perfectly exposed because of the three one-second stacked images of night mode. Now, if you look really close, there is noise in this image because it was only three seconds. When I got the iPhone XS, I have to tell you, I could barely tell the difference in the camera from the iPhone X. But just night mode alone on the iPhones 11 make them a massive improvement over the iPhone XS. You could not pull this iPhone 11 Pro out of my cold, dead hands if you tried. One of my favorite things about the way I tell stories on the podcast is how hard I make it for you to figure out where I'm going and how I'm going to get there this is going to be one of those times. This article is part of my Tesla tech series, but by the end of the story, it will be a story of nerdy programming. How fun is that? When I first got the Model 3, I realized I could no longer use the dash cam that I'd purchased for my Acura TL. The dash cam got its power from the onboard diagnostics or OBD port, but Teslas don't have an OBD port. There's a whole lot of stuff they don't have. I don't have a radiator. I don't have an oil filter. I mean, I don't have spark plugs. I guess, I don't know. Do people have spark plugs anymore? Anyway, I don't have all the normal stuff. And one of those things is the OBD port. 
Teslas already have a slew of cameras built into them. The Model 3 has three cameras mounted to the windshield above the rearview mirror, one mounted to each front fender looking backward, a camera mounted in each door pillar, and of course the rearview camera above the license plate. It would seem that I should be able to get access to the footage they gather and use some of that in case of an accident. Now, let's have a, a little side note here. There's evidently also a camera inside the cabin pointing inward, but it's dormant right now. Elon Musk explained in a tweet, because evidently that's how we communicate nowadays, that it's there for when full autonomous driving is a reality and you'll be able to rent out your car. The internal camera will allow you to have a video of whoever is in your car in case they mess it up. But that's actually not important to our discussion. It turns out that you can use some of these cameras to record dash cam-like video. There's not much to getting the video recorded, but people have created these elaborate instructions on how to do it. Basically, get a thumb drive, 8 gigabytes will do, it'll come formatted as FAT32, leave it that way. Create a folder in it called Tesla Cam with leading caps, all one word, and you're ready. Under the front console between the seats are two USB-A ports. You plug the thumb drive into one, and you're ready to start recording. On the giant display that controls everything in the Model 3, when you start to drive, you'll see a little camera icon with a red dot in it. That means it's now recording to the thumb drive for you. From now on, the car will automatically start recording three simultaneous videos. It creates one from some combination of the cameras under the rearview mirror for a front-facing view, and two backward-facing videos from the cameras on the door pillars. The cameras record one rolling hour of video writing over itself when you go past one hour. If you're in an accident or witness one, or see a meteor, or something else extraordinary, you tap that little camera icon once, and it changes briefly to a download button. In a second or so, it will show a little check mark to tell you that it successfully wrote the file, and then it'll change back to a red dot on a camera icon. This tells you you've successfully saved a clip of the last 10 minutes, and that will not be overwritten. On the thumb drive, two subfolders will be created inside the Tesla Cam folder you create. One called uh, Recent Clips and one called Save Clips. Recent Clips is the rolling one hour I told you about, and Save Clips are those created when you tap the icon to save the last 10 minutes. That's the good news. The bad news is that the car creates a new video file every single minute. It stores up to one hour of video, and remember there's three sets of cameras there, so 60 videos per hour times three video sources means 180 separate little tiny videos are created in one hour of driving. Even the save clips you asked for are in one-minute increments times three. Your nice little directory structure is now a hot mess. The videos are named with year, month, date, hour, minute, second as part of the file name. That's followed by which camera took the video. For example, it'll say front, left repeater, or right repeater. This is somewhat helpful, but how the heck do you watch the videos in three pieces cut up into one-minute chunks? That's where things get interesting. Before I jump into the geeky rabbit hole that consumed an afternoon for me, I have to tell you about another feature of Tesla's. It's called Sentry Mode. Sentry Mode is not even mentioned in the 172-page manual for the Model 3, but knowing it existed, I was able to find a blog post explaining the feature. It was over at Tesla.com, and it's entitled Sentry Mode Guarding Your Tesla. Sentry mode can be enabled from the touchscreen like everything else, and it uses those same external cameras to record incidents that happen to your car. 
If someone leans against your car or jostles it in some minor way, the screen will show a big red record button that looks exactly like hell from the movie 2001 that tells the person that it's recording. If a more severe threat is detected, such as breaking glass, the alarm will go off and the stereo plays music at maximum volume, all while recording on all those cameras. The video is saved 10 minutes prior to the time the threat was detected, which says that the cameras are always active in sentry mode. Guess what? Sentry mode creates three separate videos in the exact same way that the dash cam mode does. So we're going to have to figure out a way to get this video assembled in a way that makes sense. Clearly, we need an app. On puretesla.com, there's an article entitled How to Set Up Tesla Dash Cam and Sentry Mode, where they mention that there's an open source app on GitHub by Eric Hendricks that you can download to combine the videos in cool ways. Eric's script will stitch all of the one-minute segments together so you have one video instead of 180 of them. It also stitches the two rear-facing videos together with the forward-facing camera, giving you a full view of whatever was happening. The app has three options a perspective view, and that gives you the two rear-facing views sort of diagonally on the right and left of the front view. There's a widescreen mode where the three videos are all in a row, or he has what they call a full screen where the front-facing camera is at the top and the two rear-facing ones are down below and kind of touching in the middle. The Pure Tessa author did offer a warning. The author said that Eric's app will require some chops with the command line. That made me want to do it even more, right? I navigated over to Eric's site at pipi.org, that's spelled P-I, I'm sorry, P-Y-P-I dot org, and I found the download link to the application for Windows and Mac. The link for the Mac was to a nice little disk image file. Inside the DMG, it invited me to drag an app called Tesla underscore dash cam into my applications folder. I double-clicked the app. The terminal launched, and then I got a notification in the upper right of my screen that Tesla Dashcam had found the correct folder on my thumb drive. Remember, we had to have that correct folder suggested or created already. It then gave me some glop about processing clips that spit out on the terminal, and eventually it said it was completed. Well, wait a minute. What just happened? I thought we were going to have fun on the command line. I opened the readme file and learned that the app should have created a folder inside my movies folder called Tesla underscore dash cam, and my video would be in there. While I was disappointed that I hadn't gotten to fiddle around in the terminal at all, it was pretty cool to see the video stitched together with the front view on top and the back view side by side showing full coverage. But then I noticed the two rear-facing images were mirror images of what they should be. Everything was backwards. I started reading the readme file some more and learned that there are a ton of modifiers you can add to the running application if you run it from the command line. Woohoo! Let the nerd fest begin. This is the actual point of this story. The script is written in the language Python. I do not know Python. I don't know anything about Python other than how to spell it. Some people may have run away at that point, but it sounded like the best fun ever to me because I don't know anything about it. You see, the instructions they gave us were simple. It said, Python has to be installed as well. I recommend that, in that case, to install the package from PyPy using pip to ensure that all the package requirements are met. All right, Python from the package from PyPy using pip. (laughs) Totally follow that, right? Well, I did find a site, and you're going to love this, pip.pypa.io with some detailed instructions. But let's take a pause for a moment. You may be yelling at your devices right now that Apple includes many programming languages in macOS, so I shouldn't have to install Python. 
While that's technically true, for some reason, Apple has chosen not to update the programming languages it includes. macOS Mojave, for example, comes with Python 2.7, but the current version is 3.7.4. The Tesla Dashcam script requires something above 3.4, so I need the current version. I followed the instructions about PyPy using pip, but it wasn't entirely clear to me whether I'd actually installed Python at that point. By the way, to find out what version you have on your Mac, you simply type into the terminal which space Python. You can do that with any of the languages. Anyway, when I typed which space Python, it was still reporting Python 2.7, even though I thought I'd installed 3.7.4. I decided to install from the command line using a utility called Homebrew from brew.sh. Luckily, I already had installed it on my new compaved Mac because I was doing some other development stuff earlier in the week. I'd also used Homebrew to install the definitive video editing library for Unix called FFmpeg, which this new script for the Tesla Dashcam also requires. But after the Brew install of Python 3.7.4, which Python was still saying Python 2.7, it became obvious to me that while I may have successfully installed Python 3.7.4, Python 2.7 was the default version macOS was going to insist on using. And I thought about a few ideas and how to get around the problem, like, uh, I don't know, messing in dollar path and aliases and such, any one of which I was unqualified to execute, but quite willing to try. But then I found a fabulous article at opensource.com by Matthew Broberg. He's M.B. Broberg on Twitter, and he's awesome. Anyway, Matthew is from Red Hat, and his article changed everything. The title of the article is, quote, the right and wrong way to set Python 3 as default on a Mac. I knew that Matthew understood what I was going through when he included an XKCD cartoon that explained how to install Python, and it was littered with all of the terms I've been blathering to you here. Clearly, Rando Monroe of XKCD understands my pain as well. Anyway, the article from Matthew does what it says on the tin. Matthew goes through an elaborate detail all of the wrong ways to try to get macOS to use Python 3 as the default and explains what will go wrong with every one of these seemingly good ideas. Standing on the shoulders of giants, Matthew learned from Moshe Zadka, author of many books on Python development, that you do not want to change the default version of Python. You want to never care about the default. Moshe recommends doing this by using something called PyEnv, I, it's hard to say, P-Y-E-N-V, PyEnv, so like Python environment. It's a way to manage Python environments. Now, I don't entirely understand what PyEnv does, but I was able to install it using our little friend Homebrew and then use PyEnv to install Python for what might be the third time. After that, I was able to use PyEnv to set Python 3.7.4 as my global, but still not default version. There was one last command I had to enter into the terminal that looks like absolute gibberish to me. I took this one 100% of faith that it wouldn't cause anything to explode on my Mac. I put it in the show notes in case anyone wants to let me know what it says. The only thing I do know is that it put some stuff into my bash profile, which I had to create for this to work. I also realize I will have to move this to my ZHS profile when I switch to macOS Catalina when, when it comes out. The good news is that after all that, I was able to type which space Python into terminal and it would finally say 3.7.4. Huzzah! We're only one command away from being able to play with the Dashcam software. 
I already had the Mac application and I did the auto creation of the dash cam video in a format I didn't favor. I didn't like the way it was. Remember, the images were mirror images. Now I needed to download the binary version of Tesla underscore dash cam. I executed that little maneuver with our new friend Pip with Pip install Tesla underscore dash cam. Now can finally play with the video resources. Now, remember about three hours back, I told you about putting in the pre-formatted thumb drive into the, with the folder Tesla dash cam in the car, and it will record up to an hour of video in 180 tiny little segments? Well, to run our shiny new Python script in terminal, you simply type Tesla underscore dash cam dot PY, showing it's a Python script. It will run with the default settings, just like the Mac app. By the way, I suspect the Mac app is an automator script with a bash shell inside it that just runs this script. I should check into that. Maybe I can edit that. Anyway, we want to get fancy and change those default settings. The help file, which you can get to by typing Tesla underscore dash cam space dash H at any time, shows a vast list of parameters we can specify. The main thing I wanted to fix was the fact that those two rear-facing cameras were mirror images of what they should be, and they were swapped in location. To correct this, you simply include the parameter dash dash rear, and it puts the rear cameras in their logical places, and they're no longer mirror images. Once I had this corrected, I realized that the rear two rear-facing cameras actually slightly overlap, giving you 100% coverage looking backwards from, say, six feet behind the car. That's pretty amazing design since the cameras on the fenders barely stick out at all from the sides of the car. You can also add a parameter of dash dash layout space widescreen, and now the front-facing cameras in the middle with left and right cameras on either side, all in a straight line. After I went to all the trouble to make the widescreen version, I realized it's actually much more viewable to have the two rear-facing cameras on the bottom as in the uh, full-screen default. You can change the scale of the video. It's one-half by default in full-screen. You can change the quality of the video, and you can change the compression speed. Now, the defaults are probably fine for a quick perusal, but if you're trying to pull out the license plate number of the joker who rear-ended you, then being able to have the highest quality video possible is essential. Not that that hasn't happened to us twice. There's a lot more parameters to play with if you want to have the same kind of nerd adventure I went to on this, uh, this week. The bottom line is that I had a blast figuring out how to install Python, how to install the script, and how to configure it. And while I'm proud of my little self for figuring this out, the important thing is that if I remember to keep a thumb drive plugged into my car all the time, I'll have a way to retrieve high-quality video from the plethora of cameras on my Tesla Model 3. Now, I figure there's about eight people on the planet who have Teslas and who have the requisite programming skills and the desire to have a, spend a half a day goofing around with this. I hope at least one of those eight people on the planet is a Nocilla Castaway. Now, after I did all of this work and after I wrote all of this up, this week Tesla offered us an update to the new version 10 of the control software. It includes some nicely terrifying options like advanced summons, which lets you have the car drive do in a parking lot. <laughs> Yikes. We'll test that soon. Anyway, but it also added two new features to the dash cam. It now puts the sentry mode alert videos into a separate folder and it is another new folder for the rear-facing camera, the one you see when you want to back up. Now, I'm not sure why they didn't have that before, but they do now. I'm going to have to check with the developer on whether they're planning on capturing that video, too, with this uh, cool new app. 
Also, with the new bandwidth flying around in these cameras, the car says my brand new thumb drives, I bought five of them, are too slow. I paid nearly $3 a piece for those. You know, it's telling me it has to be faster than four megabytes a second. And I tested them with uh, Blackmagic Speed Test. And it says they're like six or seven, what is it, read and 30 write? Or I, I might have that backwards. Anyway, I'm not sure why it's not working, but now I have loads more nerdy stuff to do. I talk a lot about the value of the Amazon affiliate links as a way to support the show. Did you know that anything you buy immediately after following one of my Amazon links also helps the show? For example, I could put a link in the show notes to the new Kindle Paperwhite I brought, bought recently. And if you click the link but you go buy dog treats instead of in the same session, a small percentage of your doggie's joy will go to help the podcast. Or maybe you click the link to the Greenies dog treats I just bought on Amazon, and in that same session, you buy a Kindle Paperwhite. Now the e-reader joy will go to help fund the podcast. See the glorious symmetry? Anyway, I thank all of you who do your shopping at Amazon through these portals of joy that I make for you. And I'm definitely a geek. As I'm crazy, and this has been confirmed by Allison herself, once again this year I have been running all the betas. Well, except for watchOS, because I no longer wear an Apple Watch. I give Apple 100 of my hard-earned hoonyackers every year for a developer account, partly so I can sideload iOS applications which I write for personal use in class, and partly so I have early access to beta software. Now, sure, I could wait for public betas and such, but the cost is worth it to me to live life on the bleeding edge. Except, this year has been, well, rough, to say the least. I've been running betas for years, but this has got to be the worst set of betas ever, by far. iOS 13 and iPadOS 13 have just been incredibly unstable. Usually, the first month or two of betas after WWDC are rough, but usable. And by August, things have usually settled down, meaning that, quirky bugs aside, there are no showstoppers which prevent me from working. Now, to be fair, in the early betas this year, there was a really nasty AirPlay mirroring bug on iPadOS. But since this same bug has surfaced in the past, I knew how to work around it for a while, and it was fixed by August. But here we are in late September, and stability is nowhere to be found. My iPad Pro and adorable new iPhone 11, both on 13.1, continue to spontaneously reboot, or even kernel panic, at least a few times per week. And while I'm used to this by now, the not-so-crazy ones of you out there who stay far, far away from the fast lanes of the beta speedway may be less patient and less tolerant of iOS 13 and iPadOS 13 as they stand currently. Therefore, my recommendation continues to be to wait as long as possible before updating, or at the very least, wait until 13.2 is released. Now, 13.1.1 is already out, and while it seems to fix some bugs... As Allison can attest to, there's still plenty of wonkiness left. And with the exception of new hardware and security fixes, there's likely no reason to rush into upgrading. After all, for most people, it is a one-way street. But if you do decide to upgrade, I implore you to make sure that iCloud backups are current and perhaps even make and archive a backup using iTunes before hitting that update button. Link in the show notes about how to do that. And if you can wait for 13.2 or even 13.3, I believe that you'll be happier with the overall quality of the experience. And above all else, I would strongly urge you to be cautious about upgrading to Catalina. 
Catalina has been, frankly, a mess. My MacBook Pro continues to have spontaneous reboots and hibernation issues, and while the problems have been less infrequent since the last beta, there are still more bugs to be worked out, especially when you couple these issues with compatibility issues from apps yet to be updated for 10.15, not to mention the loss of 32-bit application support altogether. Now, yes, I know, it's a beta. But I say all these things to you not to bash Apple or to spread negativity, but rather to give those of you out there who want and need your Apple devices to continue working smoothly a reason to pause and reflect on whether or not you need to rush out and download the latest Shiny. This year's beta cycle is very, very different than any beta cycle in recent memory. And besides, we're fast approaching the time when it's soon to not be a beta. So unless Apple pulls back the curtain and reveals a magically stable suite of operating systems, well, winter and the point releases are coming. And the advice that it's best to hold off especially applies if you are the owner of a Mac with a T2 chip. Which leads us to the grand tale of my recent trip to the Table of Sadness, trademark Podfeet Podcasts 2019. As usual, I've been running Catalina since day one. Yes, I'm crazy, but it's fun, even when it doesn't quite work right. But one habit I've gotten into is my annual macOS Nuke and Pave just before the final release. Every year, I move all my files off of my beta Mac and downgrade to the previous version of macOS. It clears out the cruft and makes things sparkly again when I upgrade to the final release. It's a song and dance I know all too well. Use Command-R to enter recovery mode, and from there, erase the drive and reinstall. At this point, Bob should be my uncle. But alas, Bob quickly became more like that relative during the holidays who eats all the good stuff at dinner and falls asleep on the couch for a week and a half. Or something. Anyway, I attempted the Mojave install multiple times, but every single time, just before reboot, it would display an error message akin to, this computer must be connected to the internet to continue with the installation. Okay, well, sure, that's weird. After all, it had downloaded the entire installer from the internet, but failed the very last second. Time to go to my backup method, booting from a Mojave installer USB. Except this too was a failure. Every time I tried holding the option key on startup, the USB was there, but unable to be selected. As this is my 2018 Mac Mini with the T2 chip, I thought perhaps the setting to allow booting from external media was disabled. But since I had already wiped the drive, I was unable to change this setting in recovery mode. Okay, time to go to the mattresses. Internet recovery. Alas, even tried and true option command R led to the same internet required error. Eventually, internet recovery even refused to connect to my home Wi-Fi. I even tried tethering to my iPhone with no luck. Even Ethernet didn't work. It would always stop at the same point in the process. Since even internet recovery was failing and USB boot was locked out, I began to suspect that this was perhaps a problem with the T2 chip. I found instructions online on how to place the Mac Mini into DFU mode, which allows you to use Apple Configurator and a second Mac to make low-level changes to the system and hopefully restore things to working order. Except this also produced a baffling message. The OS install could not be authorized for this device. The build may not be approved for production installs. The OS being referred to is BridgeOS, which is a low-level OS running on all Macs with a T2 chip. 
It was at this point that I started to search around online for any information about downgrading from Catalina to Mojave. This was where I knew I was in trouble. I found many folks warning that attempting such a downgrade would effectively result in a bricked Mac. If you're curious about the details, there's a link in the show notes. But suffice it to say, as best I could tell, my Mac Mini was bricked. And side note, can you imagine a world where Macs can no longer be downgraded to the previous macOS version? I mean, it's probably good for security in many respects, but I grow more and more scared of a future where the Macs start to resemble the iOS devices and not in the good ways. Anyway, it was time to visit my least favorite place, the Shinsaibashi Apple Store here in Osaka. It's seemingly always slammed with plenty of tourists, mostly from other Asian countries, But especially this time of year, there's lines on both floors inside the store, as well as one spilling out on the sidewalk. But somehow, I managed to get a next day appointment. And the geniuses were baffled. Seriously, it took three different escalations, because none of the people I spoke with quite knew what to do. I explained my situation in detail, and while they understood the gist of what I was talking about with Bridge OS and whatnot, they also kind of looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. Well, I mean, we were speaking in Japanese, but this is Japan after all. I should point out that the third genius who came to help me was not my little friend. However, he was also not not my little friend. What I mean is that throughout the entire process of waiting for diagnostics and reattempting internet recovery, there was no small talk. Now, to be fair, this is simply a cultural difference. By and large, customer-employee relations in Japan are incredibly scripted and forced, and deviating from the script, especially when speaking in Japanese, tends to leave a sense of uncomfortableness and insecurity in the air. So we sat there for about 10 minutes in complete silence. Anyway, this was the point at which I began to feel like maybe I should be the one behind the genius bar instead of sitting on the stool. Yes, we still have genius bars. See, eventually, after multiple failed reinstallation attempts, the genius tried to reformat from APFS to HFS+. Well, I figured from the start that this wouldn't work, but I tried to nudge him along regardless. Besides the fact that Mojave doesn't support installing on HFS Plus drives, he didn't even know how to delete, or that you needed to delete, an APFS container. Actually, I don't think he even understood the concept of APFS containers not being like traditional partitions. And if you'd like to learn about that, there's a link in the show notes. I tried to subtly explain this to him, but he just kept trying things that were wrong. It felt like maybe, just maybe, I was being dismissed. This happens quite often here, to be honest, and I'll avoid detailing all about how women, especially geeks, are treated in Japan. But suffice it to say, computers and technology are, by and large, seen as a man's hobby. I mean, the tech magazines here still have female models in revealing outfits sprawled on their covers and pages. In 2019! But I digress. In any event, eventually, he went to help other people, and I went to work. I grabbed the keyboard and fired up Terminal. With a simple diskutil command to delete container, I had a working HFS plus partition by the time he came back. Now, it wouldn't install Mojave, of course, but at least he could check that box off his list. Well, we both agreed that we were out of options, and since they don't appear to fix Macs in store, it looks like it was off to the repair center. He showed me a work order quoting two weeks and 360 hoonyakers. 
I started to protest and explain that if that was the case, I'd rather just wait and see if the final version of Catalina fixes the firmware installed not being authorized issue. I mean, once it's officially released, BridgeOS should be authorized for install, right? Anyway, he quickly fixed the work order and showed that it was indeed covered under warranty, and so off went my Mac Mini to the repair center. Oh, and it was during this work order section that he finally decided to throw out a few small talk questions. Of course, he went with the obvious and safe questions, such as, where are you from, and how long have you been in Japan? Too long was my answer to the latter. In the future, I hope he'd try asking more original questions, like if I'm liking that shiny new green iPhone 11, which has been sitting on the counter for an hour, I am, or what my favorite ice cream flavor is, mint chocolate chip from Family Mart or green tea for the record. Or at the very least, maybe try ignoring my ethnicity and gender and just try having a conversation with the next geek girl like me who walks in. They do exist, right? And thankfully, my Mac Mini is covered under warranty, so they fixed it for free. Actually, in the time between when I wrote this piece and have actually gotten around to recording it, Apple has shipped my Mac Mini off to the service center, swapped the entire logic board, yeah, and overnighted it back to me. Talk about service. There are perks to living in Japan. And I suspect that even if it had been out of warranty, this may have been covered regardless because it seems like it was an error with Apple software as opposed to anything I did. And I'm not the only one who's having these reports of bricked Macs. So just be careful. Tuesday night to Saturday morning really isn't that bad for a repair. But still, these are the pitfalls and perils in the beta lane. And while I don't think you'll have as rough of an experience as me, Maybe, just maybe, you should stick to the tried and true, reliable and released software for the time being. Bye-bye. I love everything about that story, Kaylee. I I love the uh, learning the culture stuff about uh, the way women in tech are looked at, which is not a good thing, but I love learning about it. I love how incredibly nerdy you are, why you had to do this in the first place. Um, of course, I loved your use of the uh, table of sadness, trademark no silicast. Um, everything about it's great. And I love that the, uh, the end of the story was that you got it fixed for free. So that's the best story ever. I, um, to everybody else, I told Kaylee, uh, she was doing a podcast for a while and she stopped doing it because it was stressing her out with her workload at work. And I said, well, when you feel that urge to do some content, always do it for us. I would love it. I loved her podcast, but, uh, I love having her do content for us here. Fantastic. I've been a fairly happy user of Apple Photos on iOS and macOS ever since it came out. Sure, I complain about how long it takes to download my 77,000 photos when something goes wrong, but the feature of having all my photos everywhere is glorious, and I wouldn't give it up. I've really found that the tools to edit photos are pretty darn good, and again, having all of the changes sync across all of my devices is magical. The one complaint I had about the editing capabilities of photos is that the tools were not really very discoverable. I think they didn't want people getting overwhelmed with tools and options, so they just hid them so normal people wouldn't worry their pretty little heads about it. Now, I dug in and learned every tool, but I have to wonder how many people wish they had more power in photos for editing and didn't realize the capabilities were literally under their fingertips. The interface of the Photos app in iOS 13 has been dramatically changed, and I think it does a far better job of exposing the capabilities than the previous version. In addition, there's a bunch of really cool features. 
Now, I do want to tell you that I've had five phones on my desk this week, at least four of which I used in figuring out the Photos app, because I wanted to make sure if I described something that was iOS 13, that it wasn't specific to the iPhones 11. So I'm going to really make sure I delineate whenever it's something that's just for the iPhone 11 or when it's something that everybody can play with. The vast majority of what I'm going to talk about is for everybody. The new Photos app in iOS feels a lot more like the desktop version of Photos on macOS to me. You know how when you go into Edit in Photos on macOS, you see a circle with three dots inside it in the upper right? If you select that, it reveals any Photos extensions you have installed. For example, I can use an Affinity Photo extension on my Mac called Affinity Retouch to use the in-painting brush to remove a power line that's wrecking a sunset. And when I save, I'm back in Apple Photos with my improved photo. In iOS Photos, now you'll see the same circle with three dots in the upper right that when selected shows any apps that will work as extension to Photos in iOS. I have Touch Retouch installed on my phone, and again, I'm able to remove a power line, and when I'm done, I'm right back in Photos with my improved image. I don't have a copy saved someplace else. Now, you may be yelling into your device right now that we had the three-dot circle before, and it did allow you to open Photos in other apps. Now, technically, that's true, but not nearly as many, and it wasn't in the upper right where it should be. I fired up my old iPhone 7 with iOS 12, and while in the three-dot circle I could see Markup and Face App, I couldn't see Touch Retouch or Pixelmator as I can in iOS 13. Now, as I explain the changes in the interface, I should mention I'm describing the iPhone view of Apple Photos. Things are moved around a bit on bigger devices like the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, or if you look at it in landscape, I'm going to be talking in portrait mode just so we all stay on the same page. I figure if you care about this topic, as a minimum, you have an iPhone, so we're going to use that as our reference. Now, it's kind of empty up at the top of photos in edit mode now. Other than the three-dot circle, the only other thing up there is a single word. When you first get into edit, it simply says adjust. Now, that word is going to change depending on which set of tools you have selected. Adjust is the default you go into. Now, I said there's nothing else at the top, but in some cases, it's a lie. If Photos detects red eye in an image, a little red eye button will occur up next to the three-dot circle, inviting you to tap on any red eyes to remove them. I found a photo on Wikipedia illustrating really bad red eye, and I got the little symbol in Photos when I opened it there. Comically, though, tapping on the eyes as it instructed me, it said, did not find a red eye to correct. Now, Sandy's going to really appreciate the fact that at the top, the words changed to say red space eye. And in the note down below saying it couldn't find any, it was red dash eye with a hyphen. That's just going to make her crazy. All right, enough about fixing a problem we don't actually have with our phones anymore. Let's walk through what's useful in photos editing. We're going to start with adjust since that's where Apple starts. The new interface shows a series of circles in a row under the image that you've opened. These are all the different adjustments, and for many of them, they have a little dial slider down underneath. The adjustments are much the same as what we had before, things like exposure, brilliance, contrast, and definition. If you select an adjustment and you move the dial underneath, if you go in the positive direction, such as increasing exposure, a yellow arc will form in the positive direction from the top of the circle. Conversely, a negative direction will start a solid white arc in the diff- in the negative direction. In this way, at a glance, you can see on each adjustment icon whether you've changed it, in which direction, and how much you've changed it. 
Adjustments also contain quite a few controls we didn't have in iOS 12. They've added vibrance. Uh, they've got separate cast and tint controls. They've got separate sharpness and definition controls. They've added vignette and even noise, con- uh, sorry, noise reduction. Now, I'm not the best judge of how well noise reduction works. I'll leave final judgment to the pixel peepers, peoples, I'll get it yet, pixel peepers like Stephen Getz. Now, what you didn't hear me list was any black and white controls like we had in iOS 12 because they are not there anymore. In the filters section, three of them, though, are monochrome. I think if you're serious about monochrome images, you'll use a big girl tool like Affinity Photo. And if you're not, a filter option is probably just fine. Let me know if you think I'm wrong about that. Now, as cool as the adjustments are, I think I am most excited about the new features, what I guess we're going to call the crop rotate section. That's the one with the crop symbol, but two dotted arrow lines around it. I simply love what they've done with this section, even though they didn't give us a nice name for it at the top. Now, remember how in iOS 12 and before, when you went into crop rotate, photos would decide for you that it didn't uh, that it didn't think you had your image quite straight and adjust it for you automatically. Sometimes that was awesome, but lots of times it irritated me and it was hard to get it back to the way it was originally. No longer will this happen. When you go into crop rotate, there's an auto button at the top center. You get to decide to whether whether or not to let it automatically fix your photo. I think that gives us the best of both worlds, an instant horizon fix, but only if we push the auto button. On the top left in crop rotate is the familiar flip button to get a mirror image. I've never understood why that's so prominent. How often have you ever actually used that, right? Do you need mirror images of your photos? Anyway, also on the top left is the rotate button that we need all the time. We've got a new crop button topside to represent the different standard crop sizes. When selected, the menus under the image change to show you the original, freeform, square, 169, and on down the line. And then you've got portrait versus landscape buttons revealed along with those sizes. Now, on iPhones 11 only, the camera app has changed the layout. I don't want to get buried in the details of it or I'll never finish telling you about photos, But now instead of a slider to go from photo to square, along the bottom are all of the options for flash, timer, filter shots, along with an aspect ratio button. This button allows you to choose from square, 4x3, or 16x9. Now first, since I only found this option on the 11 Pro and not the 10s, I assumed 16x9 had something to do with the ultra-wide lens. But it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just a different way to crop the image being captured by the sensor. In my opinion, there's zero reason that the older phones couldn't have this option, but they didn't redesign the menus for the older phones, so there's no room for it, I guess? I don't know, it's kind of weird. You're not missing anything. I want to get back to the Photos app, though, because I buried the lead here on my favorite features of the new app, and it's available to everyone. Let's describe the problem to be solved first. How many times have you tried to take a photo of something rectangular and it comes out looking wonky with two sides bent in like a trapezoid because you didn't point the camera perfectly perpendicular to the rectangle? That effect in optics is called keystoning. You might also have seen this problem when using a projector onto a screen. If the screen is up really high and you have to point the projector up, you're going to get that annoying trapezoid. Many projectors even have a button on them called keystoning that helps bring the sides of the trapezoid into parallel again. Well, I find that really often when I'm taking a photo of a rectangle and that I'm running into this keystoning problem. Maybe something funny or interesting happened on TV and I want to take a photo or a video of it. 
or if I'm taking a photo of the screen in my Tesla, no matter how hard I try, I cannot get the photo perfectly perpendicular so it doesn't look stupid for the show notes. Or maybe you're taking a picture of a receipt to send into your accountant. There's all kinds of rectangle problem photos. In the Photos app now, under the Crop Rotate section, there are now three buttons. One is for tilt, like we had before, but there are also two keystoning buttons. One helps remove keystoning along the vertical axis, the other one along the horizontal axis. If you open an image with a keystone problem and crop rotate, you may find that Photos automatically removes your keystoning problem. I put a photo in the show notes that I took of my Tesla screen. Uh, the one on the left is all warped and stupid looking. And when I open it up in crop rotate, it automatically removed my keystone problem. Now, I know I said with the horizon, I didn't want it doing it automatically, but this worked so well, I really have trouble complaining about how well it worked. The bottom line here is that Photos on iOS 13 got a major update, which makes the tools much more discoverable and the tools are more capable than ever before. The best part to me is that most of the tools, virtually all of them, are available to older iPhones as well. Everybody gets to play. And one more thing. All of the adjustments that I described can be done on video too, even keystone removal. Well, that is going to wind us up this week. Don't forget to send your Drumcast questions, comments, suggestions, your reviews like Kaylee did. And you can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Now, we already talked about this. Everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast, which is just fun to say, you go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeed.com slash Slack. If you wanted to find the PBS Index, where do you think it would be? Podfeed.com slash PBS Index. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Gosilla Castaways. We missed you this week, Rick, but we understand you were in, in Maui, you're drinking Mai Tais, we'll forgive you. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.